Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 on the Creature Called Man Chapter 3 The Antiquity of Civilization Part 2 But my suggestions at this point do not go beyond expressing a wholesome doubt about the current assumption. I think it interesting, for instance, that liberal institutions have been traced even by moderns back to barbarians or undeveloped states, when it happened to be convenient for the support of some race or nation or philosophy. So the socialists profess that their ideal of communal property existed in very early times. So the Jews are proud of the Jubilees, or juster redistributions under their ancient law. So the Teutonists boasted of tracing parliaments and juries and various popular things among the Germanic tribes of the north. So the Celtophiles and those testifying to the wrongs of Ireland have pleaded the more equal justice of the clan system, to which the Irish chiefs bore witness before Strongbow. The strength of the case varies in the different cases, but as there is some case for all of them, I suspect there is some case for the general proposition that popular institutions of some sort were by no means uncommon in early and simple societies. Each of these separate schools were making the admission to prove a particular modern thesis. But taken together, they suggest a more ancient and general truth, that there was something more in prehistoric councils than ferocity and fear. Each of these separate theorists had his own axe to grind, but he was willing to use a stone axe, and he manages to suggest that the stone axe might have been as republican as the guillotine. But the truth is that the curtain rises upon the play already in progress. In one sense, it is a true paradox that there was history before history, but it is not the irrational paradox implied in prehistoric history for it is a history we do not know. Very probably, it was exceedingly like the history we do know, except in the one detail that we do not know it. It is thus the very opposite of the pretentious prehistoric history, which professes to trace everything in a consistent course from the amoeba to the anthropoid, and from the anthropoid to the agnostic. So far from being a question of our knowing all about queer creatures very different from ourselves, they were very probably people very like ourselves, except that we know nothing about them. In other words, our most ancient records only reach back to a time when humanity had long been human, and even long been civilized. The most ancient records we have not only mention but take for granted things like kings and priests and princes and assemblies of the people. They describe communities that are roughly recognizable as communities in our own sense. Some of them are despotic. But we cannot tell that they have always been despotic. Some of them may be already decadent, and nearly all are mentioned as if they were old. We do not know what really happened in the world before those records. But the little we do know would leave us anything but astonished if we learnt that it was very much like what happens in this world. Now, there would be nothing inconsistent or confounding about the discovery that those unknown ages were full of republics collapsing under monarchies 
and rising again as republics, empires expanding and finding colonies and then losing colonies, kingdoms combining again into world states and breaking up again into small nationalities, classes selling themselves into slavery and marching out once more into liberty. All that procession of humanity which may or may not be a progress, but most assuredly a romance. But the first chapters of the romance have been torn out of the book, and we shall never read them. It is so also with the more special fancy about evolution and social stability. According to the real records available, barbarism and civilization were not successive states in the progress of the world. They were conditions that existed side by side, as they still exist side by side. There were civilizations then, as there are civilizations now. There are savages now, as there were savages then. It is suggested that all men pass through a nomadic stage, but it is certain that there are some who have never passed out of it, and it seems not unlikely that there were some who never passed into it. It is probable that from very primitive times the static tiller of the soil and the wandering shepherd were two distinct types of men, and the chronological rearrangement of them is but a mark of that mania for progressive stages that has largely falsified history. It is suggested that there was a communist stage in which private property was everywhere unknown, a whole humanity living on the negation of property. But the evidences of this negation are themselves rather negative. Redistributions of property, jubilees, and agrarian laws occur at various intervals and in various forms. But that humanity inevitably passed through a communist stage seems as doubtful as the parallel proposition that humanity will inevitably return to it. It is chiefly interesting as evidence that the boldest plans for the future invoke the authority of the past and that even a revolutionary seeks to satisfy himself that he is also a reactionary. There is an amusing parallel example in the case of what is called feminism. In spite of all the pseudo-scientific gossip about marriage by capture and the caveman beating the cavewoman with a club, it may be noted that as soon as feminism became a fashionable cry, it was insisted that human civilization in its first stage had been a matriarchy. Apparently, it was the cave woman who carried the club. Anyhow, all these ideas are little better than guesses. They have a curious way of following the fortune of modern theories and fads. In any case, they are not history in the sense of record. And we may repeat that when it comes to record, the broad truth is that barbarism and civilization have always dwelt side by side in the world, the civilization sometimes spreading to absorb the barbarians sometimes decaying into relative barbarism, and, in almost all cases, possessing in a more finished form certain ideas and institutions which the barbarians possess in a ruder form, such as government or social authority, the arts, and especially the decorative arts, mysteries and taboos of various kinds, especially surrounding the matter of sex, and some form of that fundamental thing which is the chief concern of this enquiry, the thing that we call religion. Now, Egypt and Babylon, those two primeval monsters, might in this matter have been specially provided as models. They might also be called working models to show how these modern theories do not work. 
The two great truths we know about these two great cultures happen to contradict flatly the two current fallacies which have just been considered. The story of Egypt might have been invented to point the moral that man does not necessarily begin with despotism because he is barbarous, but very often finds his way to despotism because he is civilized. He finds it because he is experienced, or what is often much the same thing, because he is exhausted. And the story of Babylon might have been invented to point the moral that man need not be a nomad or a communist before he becomes a peasant or a citizen, and that such cultures are not always in successive stages, but often in contemporary states. Even touching these great civilizations with which our written history begins, there is a temptation, of course, to be too ingenious or too cocksure. We can read the bricks of Babylon in a very different sense from that in which we guess about the cup and ringstones. And we do definitely know what is meant by the animals in the Egyptian hieroglyphic, as we know nothing of the animal in the Neolithic cave. But even here, the admirable archaeologists who have deciphered line after line of miles of hieroglyphics may be tempted to read too much between the lines. Even the real authority on Babylon may forget how fragmentary is his hard-won knowledge, may forget that Babylon has only heaved half a brick at him, though half a brick is better than no cuneiform. But some truths, historic and not prehistoric, dogmatic and not evolutionary, facts and not fancies, do indeed emerge from Egypt and Babylon, and these two truths are among them. Egypt is a green ribbon along the river edging the dark red desolation of the desert. It is a proverb, and one of vast antiquity, that it is created by the mysterious bounty and almost sinister benevolence of the Nile. When we first hear of Egyptians, they are living as in a string of riverside villages, in small and separate but cooperative communities along the bank of the Nile. Where the river branched into the broad delta, there was traditionally the beginning of a somewhat different district or people. But this need not complicate the main truth. These more or less independent, though interdependent peoples, were considerably civilized already. They had a sort of heraldry, that is, decorative art used for symbolic and social purposes, each sailing the Nile under its own ensign representing some bird or animal. Heraldry involves two things of enormous importance to normal humanity, the combination of the two making that noble thing called cooperation, on which rests all peasantries and peoples that are free. The art of heraldry means independence, an image chosen by the imagination to express the individuality. The science of heraldry means interdependence an agreement between different bodies to recognize different images, a science of imagery. We have here, therefore, exactly that compromise of cooperation between free families or groups, which is the most normal mode of life for humanity, and is particularly apparent wherever men own their own land and live on it. With the very mention of the image of bird and beast, the student of mythology will murmur the word totem, almost in his sleep. But to my mind, much of the trouble arises from his habit of saying such words as if in his sleep. 
Throughout this rough outline, I have made a necessarily inadequate attempt to keep on the inside rather than the outside of such things, to consider them where possible in terms of thought and not merely in terms of terminology. There is very little value in talking about totems unless we have some feeling of what it really felt like to have a totem. Granted that they had totems, and we have no totems. Was it because they had more fear of animals? or more familiarity with animals? Did a man whose totem was a wolf feel like a werewolf, or like a man running away from a werewolf? Did he feel like Uncle Remus about Br'er Wolf, or like St. Francis about his brother the wolf, or like Mowgli about his brothers the wolves? Was a totem a thing like the British lion, or a thing like the British bulldog? Was the worship of a totem like the feeling of Africans about mumbo-jumbo, or of children about jumbo? I have never read any book of folklore, however learned, that gave me any light upon this question, which I think by far the most important one. I will confine myself to repeating that the earliest Egyptian communities had a common understanding about the images that stood for their individual states and that this amount of communication is prehistoric in the sense that it is already there at the beginning of history. But as history unfolds itself, this question of communication is clearly the main question of these riverside communities. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.